0: Who knew that the architect behind St. Paul's Cathedral was also an anatomist who diagrammed the human brain? Fast forward three centuries and new scientists of the brain are learning why our sensory experience in a place like a cathedral, the incense, the soaring music, the stained glass, and the light is physiologically good for us. Esther Sternberg is an immunologist and a pioneer on this new frontier that's giving rise to disciplines like neuroimmunology and environmental psychology. Architects are working with scientists to imbue the spaces we move through, the sights, sounds, and smells of them, with active healing properties. And Esther Sternberg says all of us can create surroundings and even portable sensations to manage stress and tap our brain's own internal pharmacies. What is it about
1: beautiful vistas of mountains, about the infinite horizon of the ocean, about a cathedral? There are certainly physiological and neuroscientific basis to that feeling and I am convinced I know that these things can be measured and that's the exciting new frontier for me to ask exactly that question.
0: I'm Krista Tippett and this is On Being. I spoke with Esther Sternberg in 2012. She grew up in Canada, surrounded by scientists. Her father survived a concentration camp in Russia to become a pioneer of nuclear medicine. She trained with a good deal of scientific skepticism that emotions play any role in health. But she had a radical change of mind between breakthroughs in medical research, the illness of her mother, and her own diagnosis of arthritis. Some listeners may remember my popular interview with her a few years ago about stress and the balance within. Esther Sternberg's unfolding passions are outlined in her newer book, Healing Spaces, The Science of Place and Well-Being. I want to just start with uh, these words, place and well-being. Where does your mind go back earliest in your life when you put those two words together, place and well-being? I'm curious about that.
1: Well, it goes back to actually. I was very small, my uh, probably in grade one or grade two, and um, I was sitting uh, at breakfast with my father outside on the on the terrace. And he used to read while he ate breakfast, and there was a probably mystery story propped up against his uh, <laughs> coffee mug. <laughs> uh, and he looked up from his mug, and he it was spring, it was early spring, and he looked up at me, and he said, "Listen." to the sounds of peace and I had no idea what he meant hmm. um, and all I could hear was a dog barking and the puck puck of a tennis ball across on the, at the courts across the street and the birds chirping and I only understood many, many years later that for him he was only about ten years away from from the war, from World War II, and my mother also. My mother and her siblings had escaped, literally on the last moments when the trains were leaving uh, mm. Romania, Germany, and you know eventually they got to Canada. And so we would often uh, we were washing the dishes, you know, after dinner and. Uh, We we really couldn't see the sunset from our house, but you could tell that it was going to be a beautiful sunset. So we'd all drop everything, and my father would drive us to the top of the hill where the University of Montreal sits, and we'd sit and look at the sunset. And my parents explicitly instilled in me the knowledge that we should look, hear, smell, touch everything in our surrounding environment, And savor it because this could be your last day. Mm. They actually said that to me um, a number of times, especially the sunset. Look at it as if it's
0: your last. (sighs) And so you make this observation in your more recent work that physicians and nurses know that a patient's sudden interest in external things is the first sign that healing has begun. And you ask, but do our surroundings in turn have an effect on us? And you're part of these new encounters between neuroscience and other kinds of scientists and architecture and um, people involved in all kinds of spaces from how hospitals are designed to civic spaces to contemplative spaces. So there's a drama unfolding. There's a cast of characters (laughs) and there's this whole new body of knowledge. It's really um, exciting. And one of the milestones in this story that you've talked about is... um, Roger Ulrich's study mm-hmm. called View from a Window. The View from a Window mm-hmm. study of 1984 which right. was the beginning of one of these pieces of this new puzzle of what what you now call environmental psychology.
1: Well, so Roger Ulrich is a, an environmental psychologist who took advantage of a naturalistic experiment if you will wherein Uh, patients were admitted to a ward for gallbladder surgery. Back in those days, you actually stayed in hospital for a number of days after you had gallbladder (laughs) surgery. Um, And some of them randomly were assigned to beds with a view of a brick wall, and others uh, had a view of a grove of trees. And he simply took the clinical data and measured how much pain medication these patients needed during their recovery, how long they had to stay in hospital, in other words, how quickly they healed, uh, the number of negative nurses' notes where they were complaining or had pain or such. And he controlled for everything, age, sex, um, you know, other medication use, other disease use. And all of these patients were taken care of by the same doctors and nurses. Hmm. So it was an extraordinarily well-controlled study. And even with all these controls, where the single variable that differed between patients was the view out the window. What he found was that the patients with a view of a grove of trees left hospital, on average, a day sooner, needed less pain medication, and had Mm. fewer negative nurses' notes than patients (laughs) who had a view of a brick
0: wall. So interesting. Yeah.
1: Well, and one of the scientists that we interviewed... Irving Biederman uh, has a great quote where he says, you know, obviously looking at a view does something positive to the brain. And his hypothesis is that endorphins are released in that part of the brain that recognizes a beautiful or preferred view. And he said, why else would we pay hundreds of dollars more for a hotel room with a beautiful view? Right. You know, that really tells uh-huh. you that people are willing to put money out to pay for a view.
0: Yeah, but we don't think of it in terms of this is good for us. I mean we don't even no, we don't even think true. it that through that much. We just know that's no. what we want. So so let's talk about some different kinds of experiences that That, again, we have and maybe things we kind of know without processing. I mean, so I I think uh, most people or certainly many people would agree that um, being in a place of beautiful nature is somehow nourishing, uplifting. You know, people would use different Mm -hmm. words. That That it feels good and is good for us and we often know that we're restored afterwards. So what do you know? What do we know now? about what is happening in us physiologically in those experiences. I, I, I want,
1: because you use the word restored, can I read uh, something, uh, uh, a favorite psalm of my father's? Yes, that... of course. <laughs> <laughs> so um, my father was not a very religious man, but he would read his favorite psalm, which was the 23rd, sometimes after dinner, and he'd pull the Bible off the shelf. and. He'd read it with both wisdom and calm, and it starts, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I think that psalm, and I didn't realize it until I got to the last chapter of the book, and I, and I put that in there because my father used to read it, I didn't realize that that really comes to the core of what I'm talking about here.
0: Yeah, I I actually read that in, in your book as well and was so struck by it. I mean that that's the 23rd psalm. Your father was Jewish for for Jews and Christians. It's incredibly meaningful. I remember working in a on a floor with Patients with Alzheimer's disease and so many people there who had lost everything, every memory could still recite the 23rd Psalm. Right. But right. I also had never considered how, how much that is. It's visual. It's a picture of, of place, right? It's the still, right. and still waters, the green pastures, the green and pastures. how that works things in us. That
1: right. And, and it does take you there. Uh-huh. So those environmental variables are really important. They're affecting the brain's stress response and the brain's relaxation response.
0: Another really basic thing that work makes me be conscious of is um, light and color. And oh, again, yes. I mean, so, you know, kind of maybe we know this, but when you talk about when you describe the places where I think many of us have memories of being invigorated by these things, of being most aware of them would be gardens or mm-hmm. or on the other end of that stained glass windows mm-hmm. that somehow um, capture some of that same... You know, almost and not just the restorative, but the energetic properties of those things.
1: Well, I think that's the the very interesting point, because in general, we don't want to be always in a soporific state, right? Mm-hmm, you want to mm-hmm. be that way when you're relaxed, when you're at the beach, when you're going to sleep. Uh, but equally, you want to be energized. You want to be happy. You want to have some sense of desire. You want to be alive. Yeah. Uh, being alive means that you respond moment to moment. To different external stimuli in an appropriate way, um, and and people want to feel alive. I, I mean, I think that's why they go to places like theme parks, like like Disneyland, Disney World. You know, you get on a on, on a, a ride, and you really feel that zing, which comes from controlled stress mm-hmm. response. Really, mm-hmm. uh, which when it's just a little bit in the right circumstances, is actually energizing. People in theater, people in movies, right. Figured all this stuff out a long, a long time, time ago. before doctors long did. Time ago. Yes, uh, yes. Way, way by trial yeah. and error. Yeah. You know, what's the first thing that you that happens when you go into a movie theater or a theater? What's the first thing that happens?
0: Well, it's dark. I mean, it's a whole enveloping yes, experience. It. Well, the the lights go out. Yeah. What that does is
1: it takes away your own reality, huh. and it allows the producer to replace your reality with their reality hmm. because they've taken away the visual cues. Hmm. And so now you can immerse yourself in another place, in an imaginary place, and you 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 forget about your surroundings.
0: Hmm. One of the really interesting pieces of history that you tell is that Christopher Wren, who was yes. the architect who designed St. Paul's Cathedral, that he started out. Did he start out as an anatomist, and he was doing yes. illustrations for an anatomist? Yes. And
1: it, it was uh, it really. I was actually. I was speaking at the Royal Society of uh, Medicine in in London, and this august society has been around for uh, I don't know several hundred years. And I uh, I learned this interesting piece of of information. Uh, when I, I actually went to their library. And you can look at the original drawings of um, Sir Thomas Willis, the anatomist who first described the brain in perfect detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has this huge tome um, from 1664, where he uh, every page shows engravings of the brain in perfect detail. We cannot do better today, and there are sort of cross sections and elevations and three dimensional and two dimensional and every possible you know uh, visual um, rendering of the brain. And at the very beginning of this, you know, four hundred year old book, there is a dedication to um, Christopher Wren my colleague Christopher Wren who is the one who actually drew those drawings mm. you know who better than an architect to draw the drawings of mm. the brain mm. and so there was this collaboration across disciplines um, which today we are carrying on in a, in a different iteration
0: so one of the big interesting places this points at is at what we have traditionally called the placebo effect. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of interesting thinking and revisiting of that term recently. And your work is, you know, very much speaking to that. How would you describe what you're learning, what you know, that, I don't know, would not only make us rethink, but perhaps rename this thing we call the placebo effect?
1: Well, the placebo effect really is the brain's own healing process. Right. And, and that's a long word, so it's probably easier to say the placebo effect. But the problem with the word placebo is it carries with it a lot of baggage. Yeah. Um, it, it feels it, you know, like people, a trick us- or there's nothing yeah. to it somehow. Right. The word placebo is usually preceded by a four-letter word just right oh it's just the placebo effect well you know when you look and there's controversy about this this too the exact numbers but when you when you look at placebo controlled trials the reason we have to do placebo controlled trials to determine the quotes true biological effect of a drug or intervention is we have to subtract out the placebo effect Um, where people have an expectation that just taking a pill or having an injection or whatever the intervention is, they have an expectation that that will heal. And, in fact, it does. It reduces pain. It it can reduce inflammation to a certain degree. And it's hard to estimate, and it differs with different conditions. But the percent of effect of the placebo effect in any given intervention has been estimated to be somewhere between 30 and 90%. 90 is probably a little high and 30 maybe a little low. So let's say 50%. A drug that has the ability to help reduce pain by 50% is a very powerful drug. So, uh, you know, it's not a trick. It is your brain activating anti-pain pathways, releasing those endorphin molecules, releasing those desire molecules, dopamine, So to shift
0: and reducing the stress response. It's in fact the drug that is a trick, right? Because what we do with the drug is trick our brains into doing that.
1: Absolutely. That's it. So, you know, so why not use this in a sort of a, a carefully titrated way and say, okay, why not put the individual who needs to heal into the most healing environment where the the stress response is not activated, and to the extent that we can, it's reduced, where you have positive emotional memories that flood you, uh, put them into a situation where they're likely to release these positive, these anti-pain uh, molecules and these you know, dopamine uh, molecules of reward, and that will allow their body to heal or to receive the drugs that you are then giving them. So I'm not saying, you know, uh, don't go get, to a desert yeah. island right. and, and don't take your cancer chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying don't fight against it mm-hmm. by, uh, by putting yourself in a stressful situation. Uh, do the maximum that you can with things like meditation and yoga and prayer to help amplify these pathways in the brain that we know ultimately can help the immune system do its job to heal.
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today exploring the science of place and healing with immunologist Esther Sternberg. It's very striking to me that, yes, we're talking about some things like yoga and meditation and prayer you're also talking about light and windows right, and color yes, and yes. and and not and the right amount of noise um, all of these sensory stuff yeah, yeah but it it does turn out that a lot of the examples you give and that other doctors give or end up studying, do have some connection with spiritual traditions, um whether it's looking yes. at the architecture of a cathedral uh, or right. or or you know, Richard Davidson studying the brains of meditating monks and right. therein making some of these amazing discoveries. Um, you also devote a chapter on healing spaces to labyrinths, which is a yes. very ancient phenomenon. Um, and kind of being rediscovered in the 21st century,
1: right? And labyrinths are so interesting. I, you know, I think partly because of the the Minotaur, the the Greek myth. Um, originally, when you say labyrinth, people would say, "Oh, that's a maze." And a labyrinth is very different from a maze. And, and labyrinths are calming walking meditations and and or allow you to walk calmly and meditate and mazes are stressful places so what's the difference in a maze you walk into a maze and um, the there's a wonderful maze outside of uh, Hampton Court in near London which was built by one of the kings of uh, England you know you walk into this hedge it's got a eight or 10 foot hedge so you right away you don't see where you're going right but as you said and a lot of
0: our buildings also feel like mazes when you walk Well into absolutely the big and the reason they buildings. feel like that
1: mm-hmm. well hospitals are built like mazes because typically you have the old original small hospital building and then they keep adding wings mm-hmm. to it which hospitals until recently were designed really to optimize the diagnostic tools you know, the X-ray equipment and, and the blood mm. drawing and so on, rather than the human being that's going to be in that building. <laughs> <Okay>. um, but <laughs> airports, too. Just think about an airport. Yeah. yeah. But getting back to a maze, and, and, you know, it's funny, when I was writing the book, I described these old, dusty cathedrals and mazes and things, and my editor said... Uh, On the first draft, she said, we've got to put something in there that young people would want to read. What about Harry Potter and Mm -hmm. the the Goblet of Fire? And of course, I hadn't read Harry Potter. My daughter was (laughs) old enough that I hadn't read any of it. I'm embarrassed to say. So (laughs) I quickly ran out and bought The Goblet of Fire. And indeed, the description of... Harry Potter in that maze and how he feels is exactly the stress response it's a perfect perfect description of the physiological stress response that Mm. is triggered Mm. when you are in a place where you're trying to navigate it uh, with a time limit you know it's getting dark you want to do this before it gets dark you come to decision points, you have to have multiple decision points. That's very stressful. Um, You don't know if there's a dead end. And if there is a dead end, there could be a monster lurking there. Um, You you know, so the fears, very primal fears are are raised by these mazes. And if you put it back to going into a hospital, you're already stressed because you're anxious about your illness or your loved one's illness. You can't find your way. There are these, you know, as I said, monster machines lurking in the, in different corners where you're, you're going to, be exposed to them, and so it—it it really is a very stressful experience. Whereas a labyrinth, a labyrinth is just a pattern on the floor. Um, I described the Chartres labyrinth outside of Paris That's in the, from the 13th of century. Yes, mm-hmm. and it's just pattern of stones in the floor, um, which has been perfectly preserved because the church didn't look kindly on labyrinths. And so they made sure that the benches covered the labyrinth. (laughs) So as a result, uh, it's been well preserved. And the rose window of the cathedral is placed in such a way that the sunlight on the summer solstice comes right in and falls directly on the labyrinth. And there's all kinds of theories as to how that came about and all sorts of very interesting theories about these structures that are found all over Europe, um, also throughout the globe, and then there are structures where you walk the path and you find you've come to the middle. And then you stand and you meditate in the middle or you sit and meditate in the middle and then you walk the path and come out. But you see where you're going. You mm-hmm. don't have any dead ends. Uh you know, you have all your senses, you can see and hear and and you don't have to think about navigating. And so you're able to get into this place of peace where you're just there's something about movement.
0: Right. You know, I, I, don't know. I have to say I did it I did a. I walked a labyrinth just recently at um uh-huh. at the New Year. I haven't done that much of it, but but also what's different from what you described about the mazes or being in a hospital is um, somehow you're right, you know exactly where you're going to step next, and you're not yes. worried about that, but you you mm-hmm. stop being so oriented towards getting to the end, which is an that's, unusual that's experience um, <laughs> in my life yeah. where I'm always ticking off my <laughs> next thing on my to-do box. You know, that's a very interesting point that I
1: hadn't thought of until now. So when you talk about a place of peace, which is really what I'm talking about here, how do you find your place of peace? There is an element of time to it, or Mm -hmm. forgetting time, Mm -hmm. or not worrying about time. And we're so conscious of worrying about time and the time pressure in our world that it's hard to strip that away. And things like walking slowly... It forces you to walk slowly, right? Yeah. You can't be running through a labyrinth. Although I have seen kids running <laughs> through a labyrinth, <laughs>
0: uh-huh. <laughs> but, but um, well, I've you, for some the... you actually feel like slowing down. That, I'm, I'm just yes. thinking about this myself too. But there's something about the experience that makes you want to draw it out and slow down, and that in itself is kind of a unusual instinct.
1: Yes, I I, I think you're right. I, another similar sort of experience I've had is with a Buddhist prayer wheel right. uh, that was, or a drum, I guess it is, that was um, put into a, uh, a lovely meditation garden in um, Sun Valley, near Sun Valley, Idaho. And uh, it was done when the Dalai Lama visited there. And it was a garden especially dedicated to him. And when you push this prayer wheel around, it's actually quite heavy. And it forces you to slow down. Hmm. And in order to just turn it around and keep the right pace so you're not falling off the platform, it really does force you to slow down and look around you and just be quiet and meditate.
0: It's very striking to me how many of these examples have to do with, it's like you said, theater people have known this for a long time, about creating <laughs> yes. an environment. And it's right. also true of religious spaces. And it's everything from gardens to prayer wheels to labyrinths to stained glass windows to incense right. to music. Um, yes. Actually creating <laughs> this environment that you are learning is helps heal us, can help heal Ab- us. Absolutely. Isn't that uh, interesting? Absolutely.
1: It is, and it's, uh, you know, I talk about frankincense and and how fascinating it is that frankincense actually turns out to have immune boosting features and you know cuz i always as a as a non christian i always thought it was rather odd
0: in the christmas that, story the in the christmas wise story men. the
1: gifts of the magic. Uh-huh. right it's you have frankincense myrrh and gold and i said what why are they giving these weird things frankincense mm. and myrrh they should be giving diamonds and rubies or <laughs> and, and and in fact those fragrant resins and oils were very they were far more valuable than gold or diamonds or rubies in those times because they actually used the the Roman soldiers and and it was said that uh, the Queen of Sheba was said to have given the plants to uh, King Solomon. And then when the Romans came into um, the the Holy Land, they took those plants back to Rome and had them guarded by uh, sentries because these resins were used um, to heal after battle. To heal wounds, to pre- prevent infection. So, and, and new studies show that, in fact, frankincense and these kinds of molecules uh, do have uh, beneficial or boosting effects on the immune system. So, there's a lot of, you know, lore that can be studied now in a rigorous scientific way to understand how it works.
0: Listen to this program again and share it with others at onbeing.org. There you can also hear my entire unedited interview with Esther Sternberg and find a link to our previous conversation called Stress and the Balance Within. Coming up... Esther Sternberg on creating portable healing places. I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with immunologist Esther Sternberg, exploring new knowledge about how the physical spaces of our lives can stress us, make us sick, or help us be well. One of the influential family friends of Esther Sternberg's childhood was Hans Selye, a physician who single-handedly coined the word stress the way we use it now and implanted it in nearly every major world language. Esther Sternberg later became one of the people who helped explain the physiological and neural connections between stress, illness, and well-being. Now, as we've been hearing, she's working with neuroscientists and architects, and they're bringing new science to bear on the way we create our hospitals, workplaces, and homes. I wonder if um, you've ever heard of the uh, recently deceased Irish poet philosopher John O'Donohue? Um, mm-hmm. he talked a lot about landscape, mm-hmm. and that there's their outer landscapes and their inner. There's an inner <laughs> landscape. Which is one way, another way of talking about, you know, what's going on in that psalm that your father loved, the psalm 23, but also that we all have these landscapes. And also I think his point was we can create them. You know, we can choose to keep images of beauty inside ourselves, even when that's not what Mm -hmm. is directly around us. I don't know. I just wonder how you hear that, knowing what you know about the science and what's going on in our brains.
1: Well, I think it's absolutely true. And from a scientific point of view, um, there is a part of the brain that specializes in memory of place, the hippocampus. I mean, it's, it's important in all sorts of memory, but it, it's very key in memory of place. And one of the things that it seems that the hippocampus does is it integrates all of these incoming sensory signals uh, from the visual cortex, from the auditory cortex, from the olfactory bulb, so what you hear and uh. see and smell and touch. And the hippocampal cells that are actually called place cells because they tell you where you are in the world. So it's kind of like your internal GPS system. Those little GPS cells uh, actually have inputs from all the sensory um, modalities in the brain. And they integrate those senses and instill the the whole in memory. And so, in fact, from a neuroscience point of view, the poet was right that we do have an internal place hmm. that we can go to from our memories if we can dip into it. Ideally, yes, we would all love to be able to go to our favorite Greek island, <laughs> you know, and I describe that.
0: Yeah. Where you Is had that, a real healing experience on it. I you know, had a
1: real yeah. healing experience when I went to this tiny village in, in Crete called Lentas. And I had, you know, that was when my arthritis first uh, appeared. I uh, serendipitously ended up going there with neighbors. And in a 10-day period, I began to feel so much better. I didn't heal. It wasn't like the miracle of Lourdes, but I realized I could recreate this world at home. And and so I have on my deck in Washington, um, a gardenia tree and jasmine bush, and uh, I can sit there and in the evening in the summer and listen to the crickets and inhale the scent that reminds me of the orange blossoms and lemon blossoms from the Mediterranean. And I have lavender and I have Mm. basil and, you know, all these fragrant plants that that I find very soothing and healing. And uh, you can create your own little space wherever it is. And if you don't have a deck, you can uh you know put a few plants in a window um and if you don't have a if you don't have a window you can read the 23rd Psalm.
0: <laughs> and you're really saying um this is medicine not not yes. it's interior decoration maybe on some <laughs> level but
1: it's medicine <laughs> it's medicine and it is being applied now the wonderful thing is The designers and architects and urban planners can now and are being able to incorporate these features into their designs. So hospitals are being designed with beautiful views and with windows and uh, with places for social support. We haven't talked about that, but social support is important in healing and um, with, you know, smells to, you know, mask the, right. the and, horrible but smells and the sounds and You have to create space.
0: So you have to create spaces for social support. I mean, even in, in workplaces. Well,
1: so, and this is, it comes back to the, practicalities. Yes. So it comes back to the practicalities and why the architects and designers and urban planners need the science. Mm -hmm. and, And more and more research is being done now. That's, I think, the frontier to get the numbers, to say, it is worth spending extra money up right. front to put in more of these windows and spaces and so on. And some of the work has been done. Um, the Center for Health Design in San Francisco uh, ha- sponsored us together with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation sponsored a series of studies called the Pebble Projects where they they understood that you're not gonna build a whole hospital from scratch. And so <laughs> they, they started these studies where uh, health outcomes, various aspects of health outcomes were measured uh, in uh, patients in new wings of hospitals that incorporated these different features. Mm -hmm. And then um, Derek Parker, uh, who was one of the principals uh, involved in this, added up all of the actual costs from these different kinds of extra wings that were built on 50 different or 30 different hospitals and, and said, okay, this is how much it costs extra He calculated it would cost about $12 million extra uh, to build such a hospital, but you recouped about $11 million in the first year of operation because of the savings on not only the health of the patients, but the health of the staff. So, you know, that's the kind of evidence that we need and more and more is being done now to really document that that it's good not only for the human being in the space that you build, but it's good for the bottom line. Architects are just embracing this all over the world. And so what I tell them when I speak to these audiences is you, the designers, the people who create the built space that we, the rest of us, live in, you are our partners, our meaning the health professionals, partners in the health of the nation. You are our partners in prevention of illness, Mm. in helping to reduce the stress response, in helping people to find a place of peace, because you're the ones that build those places of peace.
0: Find out more about the Pebble Project on hospital design on our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being today with immunologist Esther Sternberg. Her latest book is Healing Spaces: The Science of Place and Well-Being. There's a beautiful, succinct, and very profound sentence in your writing. Um, if illness and health are nouns, then healing is a verb. Yes. And and I wondered, I wondered if I could ask you that on a more personal level. You are one of the people who helped demonstrate the science of how rheumatoid arthritis, for example, is a a very good example of how mind and body emotions and Mm -hmm. physiology are connected. And you also um, are a person now who lives with arthritis. So with all of this we've been talking about as a background, you know, what does healing look like as you move through the world now? And what does it look like differently because of all these things you're learning? Wow, that's a good question. Um so
1: healing when I say it's a verb, it's the body is constantly repairing itself. Uh, that's what life is. you know, a rock just sits there and and it, you know it it eventually gets into sand or or mud or something as the elements uh affect it. but a living being is constantly repairing itself. Against all of these different insults, at a very you know molecular level, at a cellular level, at an emotional level. And so disease happens when the repair process is not keeping up with the damage process, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's like a very active processes are going on under your skin and actually on your skin <laughs> um, <laughs> um, at every moment of the day and night. And so that's what healing is to me. Um, there are other, you know, there's many studies uh, asking the question, what is healing? And different people have different concepts of what the word healing is. And to be healed, uh, you know, you can die healed. Uh, right, if you use right, the right. word in an emotional sense, Not you cured, can feel but healed. healed. Mm-hmm. right? Um, you, you can feel at peace. You can feel in balance. Um, for me, I guess it is feeling at peace And in keeping up with that damage process. So I have become very conscious of the kinds of things that I do that will trigger my symptoms to be worse and the kinds of things that I can do to, to the extent possible, reduce those symptoms when I'm going overboard. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's no question that when I'm trying to burn the candle at both ends, I get worse. When I don't sleep enough, I get worse. When I don't exercise gently on a regular basis, and, and what I've found is the most helpful is swimming three to four days a week or in the summer even more, or walking 30 minutes a day, which has been shown to be beneficial uh, for maintaining health and maintaining the the you know the strength of the immune system. Having a place to sit and quietly contemplate or meditate um and social support and love is very important. Mm -hmm. Um, So these are the kinds of things that when I forget and I, you know, I'm, I'm human. I do frequently forget and push myself, and I get stressed. and And then, you know, as Hans Selye said, stress is life, and life is stress. I mean, forget about it. You can't stop stresses right, from happening.
0: Right. Which is um, which is actually uh, it helps my stress level to acknowledge that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Well. So, but what happens is when I do realize that I'm pushing myself too far, I remember how bad I felt when I didn't stop. And I do those things that I know will help me. And I did design my deck uh, at home and my sunroom at home in such a way that I do have my my place of peace. And and actually, that's where I end up doing most of my work. I I used to have my computer in a different room and i found that i kept moving it to the sunroom and i finally said okay this is obviously where i want to be i need to have well that's this interesting
0: because i think computers are part of a lot of our stress but uh, you're actually saying that maybe even that can be um in the right environment can it be gives you positive. a way to
1: yes i mean so i mean one of the things with the stress response is you don't need to go offline and I'm, I mean offline Mm -hmm. off your brain's line, not off the computer line for very long to kind of reset things. So if you're cognizant of this, you can, if you feel your, your stress level mounting and you just turn away and look at the trees and listen to the birds, um, and be quiet for a few moments, you can bring it down. You can, um, you can titrate it. Mm -hmm. You you know, there, there are, tools now available that are really offshoots of biofeedback where you can do this. uh, They're like computer games, actually, where you put a little um, sensor on your uh, finger or your earlobe and it senses your uh, blood flow and it will tell you when you breathe deeply. So deep breathing Hmm. is, is one thing that calms you because it reduces the stress response. It kicks in the vagus nerve and that uh, improves heart rate <laughs> variability and blood flow. <laughs> We're going to breathe here on the on the radio. and and <laughs> yeah. so and you can actually see your heart rate variability improve and shift from a stress mode to a relaxation mode when you use these little games. And so you can actually teach yourself to to go offline to have that shift into a relaxation mode on a moment-to-moment basis, and then you can go back and focus on whatever it was you were doing. Your life, and that being is... in a place that allows you to do that uh, it helps you to do that more efficiently.
0: From that scientist's scientist, who you were when you first started getting into this unlikely connection between emotions and physiology and where you've come now as a person who rearranges her physical space, thinking of her (laughs) physiological health. Um if I ask you this way, how has your sense of what it means to be human? How do you think that's changed?
1: Um, how has my sense of being human changed? Um I think I'm much more accepting of these notions that I was skeptical about before. I was coming from the scientific tradition, and and the tradition was, if you can't see it, it isn't real. If you can't prove it, it isn't real. And I think I'm much more accepting that, you know, maybe there is stuff that we can't see or prove. But that are these things really are affecting our emotions and our health, and I think I'm much more open to these new concepts. And so that's one thing. I am definitely much more conscious of the physical place around me. And I, you know, you you started by saying as a person who who rearranged my physical space on purpose based on these principles, actually it was the other way around. Hmm. I rearranged my physical space without realizing what I was doing. And ah. then when the construction was finished, I stood there and looked at it and I said, Oh, I just rebuilt my parents' deck. <laughs> <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And and so that, you know, takes a place back of peace from your place of peace. That, that, that yeah, right. The yeah. memories, the memories. So I guess I'm more aware of these things and I'm able to Look at these phenomena and think, "Oh, okay, now I see why I'm doing that." Um, consciously aware of of how place affects me and those around me and
0: my emotions and my health. There is a phrase, and that especially occurs in Celtic spirituality, and um, thin places. Huh. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but it's, um, uh, yes, yeah, and the idea is, uh, well, a, a lot of people would think of cathedrals as thin places or, you know, green pastures, still waters. Uh-huh. Um, being in a place where, and this is the way some people will say it, it feels like the veil between heaven and earth is worn thin, where yes. there's an accent, a sense of being, you know, planted in the earth and yet also having some kind of, almost physical sense of transcendence. Um yes. I just wonder how you react to that knowing what you well, know. Well,
1: I react to that I I have heard of that notion and I am actually very interested in exploring what is it um about such places, about beautiful vistas of mountains, about the infinite horizon of the ocean what is it that makes you feel that way mm-hmm. about a cathedral? Mm-hmm. Um, there are certainly physiological and neuroscientific basis to that feeling, that sense of awe. And I am convinced, I know, that these things can be measured. And, and that's the exciting new frontier for me, to ask exactly that question. What is it that makes one feel transcendent? And is the environment something that we can consciously um, manipulate to find those feelings of transcendence? You know, if we're so grounded in clay, is there a way to, at times, by simply going to a different place, achieve that sense of awe and transcendence? Mm.
0: And again, I mean, Christopher Wren knew something about that, didn't he? A couple of <laughs> years ago. He
1: did. And, you know, when I visited, it was, it was very interesting because I walked from the Royal Society of Medicine to uh, St. Paul's Cathedral, which is not a short walk, but a very um, interesting walk in London. And I got there, it was just before Easter. And there was a, a single man the soloist, I guess, of the choir who was practicing, I believe it was from the Messiah. Hmm. And he was standing in the middle of this dome and with this crystal clear voice that rose to the ceiling. It just gave, gave me shivers. It was really a sense of awe. So it wasn't only the physical place. It was what that place did to sound. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the most important point that I, I came to in my own journey in writing this book is that that we really can create places of peace not only in our real world, in our physical environment that surrounds us, but in our own mind's eye. And those kinds of places of peace are are portable. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and as you said, in many different traditions, like the Buddhist tradition, or uh, in, in virtually all religious traditions, you close your eyes and you visualize something. That's a way of carrying these environments, these healing places within you. It's wonderful if you can go to them, but if you can't, you can bring them to yourself.
0: Esther Sternberg is research director at the Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona in Tucson. She was formerly at the National Institutes of Health. Her books include Healing Spaces, The Science of Place and Well-Being, and The Balance Within, The Science Connecting Health and Emotions. Can listen to this show again or my unedited interview with Esther Sternberg on our website on being.org. And while you're there, take a listen to 15 minutes I had with Bill George recently on restoring trust between the financial industry and U.S. culture in the post-2008, post-Occupy Wall Street world. He's former CEO of the world's largest medical device company, Medtronic, and he serves on several corporate boards from the Mayo Clinic to Goldman Sachs. The real ethic of a financial institution is to put your customers' needs first. And there's not been enough dialogue about that inside. In some institutions, it's starting, but it needs to be reinforced all the time, every day. Again, find that exchange at onbeing.org. On Facebook, we're at facebook.com slash onbeing. On Twitter, follow our show at beingtweets. And you can follow everything we do by subscribing to our weekly email newsletter. Find the newsletter link on every page at onbeing.org. Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Stephanie Bell, Lily Percy, Michael L. Sesser, and Megan Bender.
1: On Being is a Krista Tippett public production distributed by American Public Media and is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation.
0: Next time, Buddhist teachers Robert Thurman and Sharon Salzberg explore a Buddhist take on a distinctly Christian teaching, love of enemies. Please join us.